Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our reading today is Genesis 2, verses 4 through 15. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, there's an old uh, church song that goes, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven is not my home, I don't know what I'll do. And there's times uh, in this life, uh, as full as it is with struggles and hardships, where we take comfort uh, in words like that, that this world is not our home. And yet, uh, Genesis 2 politely would like to disagree uh, with the sentiment that this world is not our home. In fact, this chapter paints a picture of the world that is very much our home, that this is the world that we are created out of. It's the world we are created for to work. This is the world that God made with his very own hands and said that it is good. It's a bit of this world that God took in his hand and breathed life into to make man and woman that we would work in it and for it. As the story of the Bible goes on, it's this world that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, visited, uh, being born into it. It's this world uh, in which he lived and died, and it's to this world that he will return and reign as king, claiming it as his own. This world very much uh, matters to God. This world very much is our home. In fact, you might more 
aptly say, heaven is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Because as we look at Revelation, it ends not uh, with disembodied spirits in heaven, but in a transformed world merged with heaven in what the author can only call a new heavens and a new earth made right by the grace and power of Jesus. You know, one of the great issues that's plagued Christianity from its earliest days uh, all the way up to today is a heresy called Gnosticism. You can write that down. It's a good Scrabble word if you ever need to save it. Uh, Gnosticism. And what the Gnostics believed, this is going way back to the first centuries of Christians, what the Gnostics believed was that this world, the material stuff of this world, skin and wood and the, the physical world, was corrupt uh, beyond recognition, beyond redemption. And so what was needed was rescue that our souls, that our spirits would escape this physical world, that somehow we would come to the right ideas, the right beliefs, that God would rescue human beings who are of essence souls, pull us out of the corrupt world and take us to heaven. Gnosticism says that the spirit is good and the body is bad. Heaven is good and the earth is bad. Ideas are more valuable than actions. Sunday worship matters, but not the work of the other six days of the week. When we go to work and raise our families and conduct our relationships and cut our lawns and care for our neighbors, that these things don't matter as much. In the early church, the first place uh, that this Gnostic heresy reared its ugly head was in people denying the incarnation, the birth of Jesus as flesh, saying, no, 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 because the body is so yucky, because the body is so corrupt, Jesus must have only appeared as though he was a man, but we know that he was really God. And so he can't have really been born, certainly cannot have really died. It was a version of this Gnostic belief that grew into the tragic position uh, of the southern white church just before the Civil War in a doctrine that became known as the spirituality of the church. Uh, And what these people uh, believed was that the church should concern itself primarily with spiritual things, going to heaven when we die, teaching people to pray, things like that. And we shouldn't be concerned with societal or political things. And it's what, this is what led uh, otherwise Christian-confessing uh, southern white slaveholders to be able to say uh, what seems to us now outrageous positions, like slavery is good uh, because it enables these Africans to come to know the gospel, to come to know the good news. It enabled them uh, to say they were claiming uh, care for black souls while enslaving black bodies and families. Gnosticism. It's a version of this belief uh, in America that often leads us uh, to a version of Christianity that says the only thing that matters is conversion, right? Getting somebody to walk an aisle or to pray a prayer, uh, getting someone to be right with God, that's what matters. Not the rest of their life, not the way they live out their following of Jesus and their jobs and their relationships and their families and their neighborhoods and their choices. And so Genesis 2 ought to forever do away with this Gnostic form of spirituality that says spirit good, earth, and body bad. 
Because it shows that we actually, human beings, you and I, are a melding of this world and the breath of God. You notice it says that God took the dust of the ground and formed man and then breathed his divine breath, his living breath into his nostrils. We are made out of this world. We are made for this world. We are literally, it says, made of this world. The stuff that makes up our bodies, the elements uh, in in the, the atoms are the same stuff that makes up this table and my dog and my car and the asphalt on the, on the pavement. It's not that it's different atoms or different elements. It's the breath of God that makes us his unique creatures, his unique image bearers. There's some beautiful poetry in this chapter. We learn here in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. The Hebrew for man uh, is Adam or Adam, right? So Adam is named man. So it's unclear sometimes in the, in the verses where he's talking about Adam as the name of the first man and where he's just calling him man. But he says that the man, or Adam, in verse 7, was formed out of the dust of the ground. Ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. So Adam and Adamah. He's pointing us to the fact that humanity was made to be joined to the earth. That we are uh, creatures of the earth and made to be caretakers of the earth. If you remember uh, the old science fiction movies, when the aliens come to earth, uh, they, what do they refer to the people of earth as? Earthlings, right? They, where are the earthlings, right? Um, that's the last alien impression for the, for the day. But they refer to human beings as earthlings, and that is close to what the Hebrew Bible calls human beings. We are earthlings. We are made of earth. We are made for earth. We are the connection point between heaven and earth, the stuff of earth filled with the breath of God. And we're made not only out of this earth, but for this earth. If you look at verse 5, he says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. From the point of view of Genesis 2, the earth needs two things in order to bear fruit. Right, if you think about what it takes in order for the plants to grow, in order for there to be a harvest in the world, they say it needs two things, the author. That it needs some things that only God can bring. Right, it needs sunlight. The world needs, it points out clearly here, uh, the world needs rain. Right, and there's nothing that any human farmer can do to make it rain. Right, as human farmers from the beginning of time have tried, there's nothing that we can do to make the things that are beyond our control happen, to make uh, for a good growing season and pleasant weather and sunny days and rain and rich soil. That is God's doing. And so it needs rain from God and it needs work. It needs someone to cultivate it, to till it, to plant it, to harvest it, to, to to bring out what it can yield. And so when we're introduced to the world in Genesis 2, there's neither of those things. There's not yet God doing his part and causing rain. gives us this lovely little detail that God's just nourishing the earth as the earth uh, kind of bubbles up water as a mist. 
But God hasn't yet started the cycle of divine reign and human work because that was waiting his partner, his partner to work the earth that he had made. And so God takes a bit of this earth and he breathes life into it. And so man is made here as the connecting point between heaven and earth. You know, most of the ancient cosmologies, the ancient uh, views of the world, had some way of talking about the place that heaven and earth meet. Uh, for some, it was a portal between heaven and earth. For others, it was some kind of divine temple uh, where men and w- women could meet with God. Uh, in Norse mythology, right, there was a, the idea that there was something called the Bifrost, which was a, a, a rainbow bridge from the world of the gods to the world of men. Yes, the same one from the Thor movies. So that might be one that you know. But in the Hebrew account, in the, in, the, in the biblical account, the bridge between heaven and earth isn't some magical rainbow and it's not some creepy portal. It's you and me. That we are the place where heaven and earth touch. Where something of the earth meets something in the image of God. And so we are made to be the ones who live in union and communion with God, filled with his very life, facing our entire lives towards him, learning from him, obeying him, worshiping him, and then facing our lives towards earth, bringing his will to the earth, cultivating the earth, making it all that it can be, that we were made to be that bridge between heaven and earth. And you may remember in Genesis 1, we learned that that calling that we have to represent God to the earth. In Genesis 1, it's presented as a kingly or a queenly calling. That we're made uh, to uh, have dominion over this world. We're made to enact the rule and reign of God bringing order to this world. Genesis 2 sheds a slightly different light on it. We remain, of course, called as kings and queens of creation, but it takes on our calling a different angle slightly, which is that we also have a priestly calling, not just made to be kings and queens, but made to be priests in God's world. If you look at verse 8, we learn, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. I love, I love this little, uh, little bit. We often think that, uh, that the garden was called Eden, that Eden was the name of the garden. And yet the author says that there was a region called Eden, and then within the region of Eden, there was a garden. So the garden isn't all of Eden. The garden is a garden inside of a larger area called Eden. So when he's narrating the rivers, he'll also say there was a river that flew from Eden into the garden, and there in the garden it spread out. And so God forms this garden, read verse 15, the Lord God took the man that he had made and he put them in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to work it and keep it. These are two words that are only used elsewhere in the Bible in this combination to describe the work of the priests in the temple. That to work the temple and to keep the temple, to protect it, to keep it clean, to keep it holy, to keep the unclean things out. That was the work of working and keeping the temple. Over and over, the Old Testament draws this line that the Garden of Eden is a temple, and the temple is like a garden. Both in the the tabernacle that Israel carried with them through the wilderness and then in the temple in Jerusalem, 
The inner court, the, the Holy of Holies, is decorated with trees and vegetation. It's made to look like the Garden of Eden. It's made to be a garden where man and God meet. And so Adam, and later next week we'll see Eve, are placed in this garden as gardener priests to tend it, to look after it, to keep it, to protect it, to represent, this is what a priest does, a priest represents God on earth and represents earth to God in prayer and intercession. Adam and Eve made to be God's priests in this world. And so, what do we learn? What do we learn about our lives in this world uh, through this passage? This can seem kind of strange and far removed from us. Literally, you can't get further away chronologically uh, in the Bible story than the first man and woman. What does it mean for us? Well, it means that what matters to God is a whole lot bigger than we often think that it is. What matters to God encompasses so much more than we often think. And so, what does matter to God? Not just the church, but the whole world matters to God. It's the first thing we're going to see. Not just the church, but the world. Look, Adam and Eve are placed, remember, in a garden inside of Eden. And then what happens there? A river, verse 10, flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. So the image here is this. Uh, Adam in the garden, serving as a priest gardener, looking over it, and out of the garden flowing waters that go out to nourish the entire world, that go out to go into every bit of the land, that carry the life that, God, that Adam shares with God in the temple, it flows out from there to give wealth and life and flourishing to every bit of the earth. This has always been the basic pattern of God's design for the world. Him ruling over all things has been in a special relationship with people, with men and women and children. Him dwelling with them in communion and then the life that they share in that place flowing out to give life to the world. Israel would have recognized this pattern when they read this story because it would have matched what they experienced in the temple where they met with God, where they worshiped God in the temple of Jerusalem and where they believed that life-giving waters flowed out to the entire world drawing the entire world to their God. Ezekiel has this beautiful vision where he's walking through the temple and then all of a sudden he sees a river flowing in the temple and then out of the temple, out of Jerusalem to the whole world. Now the problem is, uh, there, is no, there is no river in Jerusalem. right? Jerusalem's in a dry land on top of a mountain. right? There's no literal river that flows through the temple. But it was his way of picturing God's design that life-giving water would flow out of his people, not just for them. You know, it doesn't build a dam around his people so they can enjoy it and take baths in it and drink it and have fun with it. No, it flows out from them into all the other nations of the earth. The early Christians came to discern this pattern in their own life, right? That God no longer dwelt with them in a particular place, right? He wasn't just in Jerusalem anymore. 
But through Jesus, he dwelt with them and that life-giving water flowed through the church, through his people, out into the entire world. It's for that reason that Jesus could say, remember his uh, beautiful dialogue with the Samaritan woman when they met on that hot Palestinian day by the well. And he said what? He said, everyone who believes in me, out of them will flow springs of living water. Right? Water that's good for the nourishing of your neighbors and for the nourishing of the nations will flow from God's people. So God loves his church. God loves his people, his sons and his daughters. God loves his church with an unshakable love. He promised us, as we sang out of our longing earlier today, he promises his presence to his church. But we should never grow to think that God cares about his church in a way that's to the exclusion of the world. Right? It's not that he cares about his church and, and let the rest of the world be damned. It's God loves his church, and his design is that through his church, his grace would flow to the world. That through the church, life-giving, abundant, living grace would go uh, to the entire world. So what does this mean for our church? Right, It means that our focus as a church can't just be on building a great church. Right, It's so easy for any... Uh, this, isn't, this isn't our church. This is every church in every language that's ever existed. Right? There's a tendency to place our focus on, you know what I want? I want a great church. I want a church uh, with great programs for my kids, awesome music for me to sing, good preaching to listen to. Right? We want, a, we want a, a great church, and we want it for us. And yet the scriptures point us in this other direction that says the reason we want a great church, great defined by God's metrics, not our own metrics, marked by fruitfulness and faithfulness and the Holy Spirit and gospel love. The reason we want a great and beautiful church is because we want a great and beautiful city. Right? Our horizon isn't just on building a better church, but on building a better city. On building a city where all people can flourish and be safe and be loved. Where all people can come to know the grace of God. Where all people can experience His sheltering grace, where they can experience His kindness sometimes in very tangible ways. It's the reason we do things like send tutors to our neighborhood school to tutor, to invest in the lives of the children of our community. It's because we believe that the ultimate call of our church isn't just to be a great church, but to build a better and more beautiful city, and ultimately to build a better and more beautiful world. The horizon of the church's work is as broad and as vast as creation itself. Every bit of this world belongs to God. And we exist to seek its well-being, not just our own. All right, so what matters to God? Not just the church, but the world. And not just Sunday worship, but work on the other six days as well. Right, so if, if the whole world matters to God, if the whole world is the calling and the mission field of the church, then it takes a whole lot more than an hour to an hour and a half, of gathered time on Sunday mornings to get that work done. And it requires all kinds of vocations other than pastors. Right? Imagine how hopeless the world would be if everybody was a pastor. Right? If, every, if all anybody wanted to do was to get you to sit down and listen to them talk. No, no, no. The world needs the myriad of vocations that God has given to human beings. 
It needs custodians and teachers and lawyers and real estate developers. It needs painters and plumbers, right? It needs all of the different things that God calls his people to because a mission this big, as big as the world, takes more than one day. Uh, It takes the other six days. We talked last week about the Sabbath, the invitation to rest and worship. One day out of seven. But God didn't give us seven days to rest, right? There may be days we wish he did. He didn't say, "Take you know what, Take just retire. Take seven full days off, uh, work when you feel like it or when you get around to it. No, it's six days of ruling the earth and subduing it. Six days of, of working the land, of cultivating our callings. And then one day to worship and to rest. This means, amen, this means you were not made for vacation, you were made for work. Now, we know that there's parts of our work that don't feel like you were made for it, right? When your alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, you are not going to wake up like the seven dwarves starting whistling and hustling off to work, (laughs) right? Thoughts are going to enter your mind. You You might let out a long groan. You might uh, do uh, battle with that snooze button uh, and hit it once, twice, seven times, however long you hit that snooze button, right? You may have a difficult boss. You may have a job that you don't particularly like. You may have a job that you don't feel fits your gifts and your, your boss doesn't recognize what a l- wonderful contribution you could be making. But the problem isn't work because here work exists before the fall into sin, right? Genesis 2, sin is not yet entered into the world, and yet Adam and Eve are working. Now, sin comes in Genesis 3, and then work, meaningfully God-ordained work, gets a new word, which is toil. When God in the curse says, you will toil, and you will make your food by the sweat of your brow, you'll plant wheat, and the, world will, the earth will give back thorns, Right, Work does contain toil, but the problem isn't that you just need to quit your work. The problem isn't work itself, it's work in a broken and fallen world. But you and I were made for work. And we need to see that our faith is tied to our work in a very real way. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, tells a story tells a story of in his preaching, uh, in his preaching ministry, uh, someone came up to him, having recently converted to Christianity. And he comes to Martin Luther and he says, Brother Martin, prior to coming to believe the gospel, I was a cobbler, uh, someone who makes shoes. I was a cobbler, but now I'm a Christian. What should I do? And Martin Luther says, you should make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Right, That God doesn't pull us out of our callings. He breathes new life and integrity into them. Dorothy Sayers, uh, a friend and contemporary of C.S. Lewis, wrote a beautiful essay called The Meaning of Work. Uh, She herself was a uh, poet and she wrote mystery stories. But in this essay, listen to what she writes. She says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. 
right? Some of you in your jobs have felt like that's all the church has had to offer, right? Yeah, you do your job, but what really matters is don't get drunk on the weekends, and then on Sunday mornings, come to church. And that's all that the, the scriptures speak to your work. What the church should be telling this carpenter is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what use is all of that if the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No, I love this line. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop of Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. The vocation of you and me is people given work to do, is to do it well is to do it in a way that somehow reflects the care of this creation uh, that God has and that God has sent us. God, is, God, could, you know, God could have done it all without us. He could make tables on his own and just have them show up where we need them. But instead, he called you and me and he gifted us to make tables and to teach children and to go to work and to, to do the things that he's called us to do. So not just church, but the world, not just Sunday worship, but weekday work. And then finally, not just souls, but whole people matter to God. Not just souls, but whole people matter to God. You and I are not just spirits, right? We are a body-soul unity. And God cares not just about the souls of people, but he cares about their bodies, he cares about their emotions, he cares about every bit of this life. God didn't make us as spiritual beings imprisoned in physical bodies. He made us these living body-soul unities that have bodies that break down and get tired, that have emotions that feel, that have thoughts in our heads. Now surely we do need to keep uh, the eternal spiritual reality of our neighbors in front of us, right? It's true what C.S. Lewis said, that every single person you meet is no ordinary person. He says that every person you meet uh, is either in glory a being so glorious that if you saw them today, you'd be tempted to worship, or else in judgment a being so tormented and tortured that you would avert your eyes. And yet, the world will not believe the church when we say that God has good news for your soul, if they don't experience that we also care for their bodies and their relationships and their emotions and their children and their jobs and their neighborhoods. Not just souls matter to God, but whole persons. That's why those Christians were right who refused to tolerate slavery in the name of spirituality, who refused to say we'll seek what's good for the soul while ignoring what is torturous and degrading to the body. And those Christians are right today who insist that God is concerned about such things as poverty and injustice, mass incarceration, failing education, health care, abortion, the treatment of our immigrant communities. All of these things matter to God. 
Why? Because people matter to God. Not just what happens when people gather in church on Sundays, but the life and health and bodies of all of his creation and all of his people. We're called to leverage our wisdom and our jobs and our efforts, even our votes, the way that we dedicate our time, the way that we go about our spending our money, to the well-being of our neighbors as whole people, the well-being of this world. I'm going to state what's obvious. We are heading into a political season. Did you know that? Uh, it's debatable whether or not we ever leave political seasons uh, these days, right? It seems like we are stuck perpetually in a bipolar, uh, polarized, heated, and angry political discourse. Listen, the Christian church in general, and our church in particular, will have differing political opinions. I don't know if that's news to you. Uh, but the people disagree politically. Uh, Christians disagree politically. Did you know that? Uh, at the last election, uh, the, le- the last numbers I saw, 83% of white evangelical Christians voted for the Republican candidate in the last election. Uh, and that number roughly stays the same regardless of candidate. Uh, about 83% of white evangelicals vote for the Republican candidate. 7% of black evangelicals voted for the Republican candidate. 83%, 7%. Um, either we just yell at each other to determine who's right, which seems to be the course that much of the world has taken, or we have to find a way through this. Right? Especially a church that desires in some meaningfully way, a meaningful way to be a cross-cultural church. Right? Those are statistics that are, that are adjusted for theological agreement. Right? These are evangelical Christians. These are all Apostles' Creed affirming, Bible believing, evangelism endorsing Christians who disagree at that stark of a level. How on earth can we forge agreement when the whole world is literally working to keep us at disagreement? Well, it's going to take a lot longer than I have to work that out um, and someone a lot smarter than myself. But here's what I think it has to start with. It has to start with recognizing that Christians disagree about means while agreeing on ends. So we have the same end, which ultimately our end is the kingdom of God, right? Our end is the glory of God uh, filling this earth. But we could start here with the end of valuing our neighbors as whole people, right? All of us agree, whether you tend to ride a donkey or an elephant, Right? We can agree or we should agree that our goal is the flourishing of the image of God on earth. It's the protection of the vulnerable. It's care for the poor. It's building a just society where all can flourish. Now, we might disagree, and I can bet that we do disagree at times, on what are the best ways to do that. What are the best ways to contribute to the well-being and flourishing of our neighbors? We wouldn't be here if we all agreed on that. Right? We wouldn't be stuck at an impasse. But in life, if you can agree we're seeking after the same goal, then good-meaning people can have disagreements on what the best way to get there is. More government or less government, different ways of going about it. But as the Christian church, we have to agree that what matters isn't our own self-interest, 
Right? We shouldn't look at, the, look at the political candidates and then look at how their policies would affect our bottom line and vote ourselves. We vote for the well-being of our neighbors. And then we pull together with understanding. The worst, you know what? I, I believe that Satan would love to use this election cycle. Not, I don't know what you think. I don't think he's got a candidate that he prefers. He would love to use this to make the church just as divided as the rest of the world. To use this to, to, to rip the church apart. To get us yelling at each other like cable news pundits. Instead of reasoning together like brothers and sisters. You know, the ultimate uh, problem with our political world is when politics gets leveled up to the level of apocalyptic hope or apocalyptic dismay. Right, what does that mean? That means when we look at the next election as saying, this is going to be the, world, the one that either saves or damns the entire world. And usually it means the, if, if the other party wins, we're damned. What do we know in this church? We know that the salvation and damnation of the world doesn't rest in the hands of any political candidate. And that God laughs at their pretensions otherwise. Right, that God sits in heaven and laughs whenever anyone claims to rule his world. Because we know that the ultimate hope of this world rests not in any government of men and women, but it rests in the hands of our king. And he rules and he brings that to bear through his church. Right, God, God is not sitting up there anxiously worried about who's going to win our elections. What God is doing is bringing his kingdom to bear on this world through his church. He is bringing his kingdom as the living waters of his grace flow out of ordinary churches, churches that might disagree even with one another sometimes, but choose to love one another and to love their neighbors and to lay down their lives for the sake of a world that matters very, very much to our God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, sometimes it feels like we are just uh, a bunch of fools sitting down here on this earth, yelling at one another about what's best for it. Lord, we pray that in your church and in this church that it would be different. Lord Jesus, we pray is, that as your disciples, we would sit at your feet, that we would apprentice our entire lives to your leadership and to your teaching. Lord, and that our church and the Christian church in our nation and around the world would be that place where divine grace fills, fills the material world. That we would be the ones who, who lift up Jesus, the one and only true bridge between heaven and earth, the one who rules our great high priest, the one who shows us what heaven on earth looks like. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. Lord, every square inch of this world matters to you. Every single one of our neighbors matters to you. Every single one of the people uh, gathered in this room matters to you. You don't uh, love some people more than others, some races more than others, some classes more than others. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, that you would flow in us and through us. And so fill this city with knowledge of you, with your saving grace, with your empowering spirit. 
that we can really say that we are seeking the welfare and the well-being of our city and of our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.